The 1970s brought us the commercial use of the fax machine, a piece of machinery that allowed you to send writing on a piece of paper over a phone line to another fax machine or printer. Like any piece of new technology, the fax machine wasn't a stranger to odd error messages or breaking down. PC load letter? What does that mean? But it also conjures up the theory of the network effect. The network effect is a phenomenon whereby a good or service becomes more valuable when more people use it. The internet is a good example of this. Initially, there were only a few users of the internet, and it was relatively of little value to anyone outside of the military and a few research scientists. As more people gained access to the internet, it boomed into the beautiful series of tubes that we know of it today. Social media is another example of the network effect. Facebook being the giant at the moment, was of little value to most because at its birth, only college students were able to sign up for its service. But as that small change occurred, the world is now connected on a single platform. But that platform hasn't always been Facebook. Remember MySpace? How about Friendster? I could go back even further with sites like LiveJournal or Photobucket. Maybe you are a member of Six Degrees, which is considered to be the first of its kind, allowing you to upload a profile make friends with others, and post updates. Some of you may never even know these services, and as time goes on, there may be a day when no one remembers the likes of Google+, Twitter, or Facebook. It's possible. Nothing is too big to fail. The problem with these services is much like the fax machine. It's based on technology that requires other technologies and people using them to exist. If you're the only one on MySpace, then MySpace has no future to continue through time. Much like your indie game, if you design it solely to rely on other technologies, chances are good that it'll go the way of the fax machine, sitting in a corner collecting dust and still spitting out errors. It's evening in America, and across this great land, young men and women are coming together through the power of the internet with one common goal. To whoop each other's booties. Sega Dreamcast games are now online. The next step in the evolution of video games, taking aside different controls and genres, was online gaming. Gone are the days of setting up multiple machines in a warehouse-sized room for LAN parties. Now you can play with as many friends as the IP will allow from the comfort of your living room. PC gamers have enjoyed such luxuries for years, but it wasn't until Sega's release of the Dreamcast in 1999 did mainstream consoles get a chance to experience online gaming from their televisions for the first time. Packed with a 16K modem out of the box, the Sega Dreamcast had the ability to log you on using an actual browser coded on top of Windows CE. Nothing of this scope had been attempted to such size on the console side of things, and gamers were able to test their metal against others around the world to the likes of Choo Choo Rocket and later Fantasy Star Online. From here, everyone followed suit, 
Microsoft's Xbox 360 was released with a cable modem connection as well as wireless capabilities. The PlayStation 2 had games that supported online play through their own servers, with games like NBA 2K and SOCOM US Naval SEALs, which actually pioneered voice chat on a console. Enemy sighted. He's on the move. Nintendo was late to the scene, allowing limited online play with its GameCube console, with games like Homeland. Like most things that seemed to garner the most profits, online gaming became a focus for practically every major publisher and developer. It was becoming cheaper for the consumer to play due to the high-speed internet technologies costing less and then added a whole new level of gameplay that a single-player campaign simply can't provide, and has also been the host of many popular internet slangs such as lag, AFK, and 360 no-scope. It has come to a point now that games exist only to be online. Star Wars Battlefront, Destiny, and Titanfall to name a few. These games, although can be played offline in a severely crippled form, offered nothing but online gameplay. They rely on servers to be up and running, and others to be playing as well. If the servers are down and if no one is playing, then we experience the negative side of the network effect. If there's no one there to play, does it really exist? Creating a game that requires you to be on isn't necessarily a bad thing. Destiny, for example, is created in such a way that it is meant to be ever-changing. Tweaking gameplay, enemies, and storylines that fit to a perfect puzzle to create the best experience possible. The game itself is massive and wouldn't fit on a traditional game disc to begin with. The scope of Bungie's creation is just too big. It has to always be online. It's built around that simple fact. Not only is it expensive to create such a monstrosity, but it's also expensive to maintain on the back end of things. But when the years go by and everyone has moved on to the next big thing, where does that leave destiny? Forgotten. Long and forgotten will be those who wish to play destiny again in its original form. Those servers that were once teeming with active players and regular maintenance will be gone moved on to other things, other games or site management. Sure, Bungie and Activision may release the game again as a remix or remaster, trying to string along those hearts that yearn for that experience, but it won't be the same. And why would you want to pay for a game that you already purchased 10 years ago? For that experience, that's why. And when all the years fall off the calendar again, where will that remastered version be? Forgotten. An endless cycle of forgotten titles. For an indie game, it's even harder to repeat the success as a AAA publisher can. For one, it's the money. Most indie devs simply don't have the money to control and maintain the server power that's required to run an online-only game. Sure, there's ways around it like partnering with a server farm that rents out such services and does the heavy lifting for you. But more importantly to the gamer, it's preservation. The ability to plug a game in or to launch an EXE file knowing that the game will run regardless of how long it's been may be more important than that online experience. Choosing a single or local co-op campaign over an online feature is in the purpose of preservation. 
in an interview with Henry Lowood. My name is Henry Lowood, and I'm, my title is that I'm the curator for the History of Science and Technology collections at Stanford and also for the film and media collections. Presented on a B-side of one of my favorite but now defunct podcasts, A Life Well Wasted with Robert Ashley, Lowood talks about how difficult it is to preserve a multiplayer game for future generations to enjoy. Thinking about preservation really highlights the difference between single-player games and multi- multiplayer games. Um, where you might think of a single-player game for the purposes of preservation as a lot more like a, a book in a way, in the sense that with a single-player game, if we can have an executable version of that game 100 years from now, somebody can play it, i.e. read it, if you want to think of it that way, like they would a book in a library. They can play it themselves, and that experience of playing it themselves uh, is pretty valid. I mean, it is going to be different from somebody 100 years before, but at least they have some experience. It's the same with a book, by the way. If we read a book that was written 100 years ago, our experience of that book is going to be different from the person who read it you know, at the end of the 19th century. They're going to know a lot of references we don't know. We're going to know a lot of what happened after that they didn't know, all that sort of thing. With multiplayer, you get into a very different situation. And I'm grossly simplifying here. You know, There are... Um, but be that as it may, with multiplayer game, uh, it gets kind of it gets very difficult because let's especially if you talk about a massively multiplayer game. Let's take EverQuest, okay, as a game. Uh, we save the software, we save the software perfectly. We break down the authentication that's necessary so somebody can log in. We set up a server a hundred years from now. We've got everything ready. Somebody can go in. You fire up your EverQuest a hundred years from now. You walk in. It's completely empty. There's nothing to do there. You can't play the game. I mean, th- there's nothing. Yeah, you could populate it with people a hundred years, you know, other people, but who would want to do that? Preservation is important on many levels. One is for nostalgia, allowing those who were there on launch day before the copycats and rehashes came out to enjoy something from their past. Another is for those who are looking for more of your library, because whatever great game you just released, we want more. Another still is the common drifter who comes across your game by happenstance. They enjoy it and want to play your newer stuff. It's a roadmap from where you came from to where you are now. Everyone should remember their roots. coming out with uh, just all of that so, in one so that, I, don't, I, don't know how, I, I don't know how they're going to sell it but every time we've seen the Vive shown off it has yeah. been Lighthouse it has been yeah. like room scale VR is their entire pitch with that right. thing I mean they yes. added that camera to the front to further double down on the room scale VR stuff relying on technology that exists in the far reaches of the mind known as the cloud it can also be technology that physically sits in your hands as well that may stop your indie game from living the everlasting life it deserves. There are many types of controllers and interesting ways to play a video game that have come and gone, and very few have had the staying power that you could bet your money on. Take, for example, the Steel Battalion controller for the Xbox game Steel Battalion by Capcom, which consisted of two control sticks and about 40 buttons or so. At its release, Steel Battalion for the game and controller retailed for $200. It's a lot of money to spend on just a single game for a console in late 2002. Microsoft wasn't the only console manufacturer that took its stab at interesting controller ideas. 
Sony was more than happy to greenlight Tony Hawk's Rideboard, which is basically a skateboard but without the wheels. Problem was is that the board did little in actually detecting your movements, and it pretty much only works with Tony Hawk's Ride. Nintendo was happy to pack in the bongo drums to be used with Donkey Konga and Donkey Kong Jungle Beat for the Nintendo GameCube. Again, a strange controller to begin with that only makes use of two different games. Or how about the Wii Bowling Bowling Ball? I'm sure you can figure out what that's for. Taking a chance on emerging hardware is a tough choice. You don't know if it's going to work out for the market or not, because there's no viable information to go on except for speculation. At the time of this episode's release, there's still a ton of news coming out for virtual reality, mainly the Oculus Rift, the HTC Vive, and the Sony PlayStation VR. It's a piece of hardware that seems like a fun idea for video games and a natural progression and evolution. But VR has been around for a long time. Nintendo took a chance with the Virtual Boy, which, albeit not exactly VR, but the concepts of games were similar. Sega VR was another that only saw an experience in the arcade and never came to a home console. Hopefully I don't need to mention the downright terrible R-Zone by Tiger Electronics. But this is what we thought virtual reality was in 1995. But it doesn't have to be something as drastic as some head-worn horror. It could be something as little as a different button layout. For example, Street Fighter 2 made parent the six-button control scheme for fighting games. Three punches of various degree, three kicks of various degree. Mortal Kombat, released one year later, opted only for four buttons, two punches and two kicks, but added a block button. This small addition of the button completely changed the paradigm of how you defend yourself. Holding back in Street Fighter 2 was the only way to block your opponent's attacks but you can use the motion also to prepare special moves. For instance, Guile's Sonic Boom as a counter-attack. Mortal Kombat forced you to rethink your hand placement by including a button for blocking, eliminating any kind of natural counter. A small thing indeed, but to a seasoned fighter, it's a huge leap to overcome. Continuing on with Mortal Kombat 3, Midway decided to add a dedicated run button to help invoke the beginning of combos. But even into modern iterations of the franchise, the run button has not made an appearance. Mainly due to the fact that a new gameplay mechanic, the dash, is considered a better alternative to just a simple run. It's not hard to follow the trends, especially when it comes to making money. Grand Theft Auto 3 was popular, so we're going to have a silent protagonist too. Make use of a cell phone for GPS in your sandbox game? Well, we have a cell phone too, in our downhill skiing game. Doing things just to do them doesn't add anything to your indie game. In fact, it may stick out like a sore thumb if your game is less than exciting. But taking a chance on a mechanic can change the outcome of the game itself, much like the run button in MK3. Running towards your opponent gives you the advantage of taking your opponent by surprise, adjusting your position on screen, and opens up the possibility for higher levels of gameplay, rather than just mashing the buttons. Because that's what everyone did when they first played Mortal Kombat just mashed the punch buttons and had an all-out punching match. And then when Finish Him appeared on the screen, you didn't know what the hell to do? Man, Mortal Kombat's great. Finish Him! Shiny new things are exciting. The possibilities of what can and could happen with it are endless. 
Almost too much, in fact. Makes you feel like there could be no wrong. But history has shown us time and time again that some things just don't work out in the long run. History doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes. This coming VR revolution could be the virtual boy of days past. That new server set up through AWS could be the Windows CE of the Dreamcast. I'm not saying I don't want you to take chances. Actually, just the opposite. I want you to make something beautiful and amazing. And remember that the overall ultimate experience is what will stand the test of time. This is Rob. I'm Rob Bryant. From Sly Dog Studios. The lead programmer over there. Sly Dog Studios specializes in creating new games for the Nintendo Entertainment System. That's right. New games for a console that was released in 1985. And not just simple ROMs you download and play with an emulator. Physical cartridges that you plug into your NES at home, turn on, and play with the original hardware. It seems crazy, right? Why would someone work so hard on creating new games on a piece of hardware that is by all rights inferior to today's standards of modern gaming? I guess the main reason I ended up picking the NES to program for, really it's just an amalgamation of different circumstances that led to it. Uh, I, I, I think it mainly overall it has to do with the way the programming language appeals to me, 6502, but even getting to that and figuring that out was a, an entire process. Looking into NES stuff, I had already known about you know the forums and stuff and different places I've hung out, and I decided, well, instead of just talking about the NES and making websites about it, what if I actually tried programming? It took me forever to catch on, but I was really adamant about it because the NES was really the system that got me to love video games. The first system I played was Atari 2600, and I knew that I really liked that. And I even tried looking into that before NES, and I couldn't get anywhere on it. Even though it's the same language, same programming language, uh, I didn't really give it much time. But when I started looking at the NES and I just started thinking of the possibilities, like, oh my gosh, you know, I could make another a game, you know, similar to, you know, anything, anything that you left from the NES, you think, I can make something similar to that at some point, that would be killer. I, I suppose the reason I stuck with trying to learn the NES and trying to get that language down as much as I did, or have at this point, is because I really wanted to be able to add to that NES library, that, that great NES library, and say, look, something I created is among these great games. He wanted to be a part of something bigger, adding his own touch to something that helped mold who he was as a person. To put his name side by side with the giants of yesteryear, and no one is as giant as Nintendo. I highly recommend checking out Rob and friends over at slydogstudios.org. They just released their latest entry into their Candelabra Chronicle series, and it is exquisite and well-deserved. If you create an amazing experience, someone will find a way to make your game run decades from now, regardless of what was popular and accessible at the time of its release. Fantasy Star Online, released in 2001, still has a strong foothold today despite the fact that Sega servers have been down for years. 
Z Damon has one of the largest online communities for the original Doom for PC, including online gameplay and even custom maps and campaigns to try your hand at. If you created a great game, diehard fans will work hard to recreate that experience for any gamer to try it today. The easier you make it on your community, the better chances you have for creating a longer lasting stay for those to come. VR and new technologies may seem really neat, but there will always be mice, keyboards, and gamepads. I am Eric M. Hunter, and this has been The Time for Indie Games is Now. For all the links to articles and games that I've mentioned in this episode, check out my website, ericmhunter.net. And if you like what you've heard, please subscribe.